Coming up on Tech Nation, Stephen Johnson. You know him from the ghost map, and everything bad is good for you. He's here today with Wonderland, how play made the modern world. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the future of cancer, its prevention, early detection, and emergent treatments. And Dr. Nicholas Sternholm, the president and CEO of Trillium Therapeutics. Trillium is working to identify cancer cells so that the immune system can remove them. We'll hear about Trillium's approach. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. I'm falling behind, not carrying my weight, so to speak. Or at the very least, I'm bringing down the average. I've just read that Americans listen to music four hours each day. And I listen to music mostly zero hours a day. If I'm in the car, I listen to audiobooks. If I'm on a plane, then it's the iPad and puzzles until we get to cruising altitude and my laptop can leap into the fray. I'm just not doing my fair share, and that means others have to listen to a lot more music to make up the difference. According to Nielsen's 2014 Music 360 survey, 93% of Americans voluntarily listen to 25 hours per week of music. I say voluntarily because surely they can't be counting that stuff that goes on in elevators or the background tunes you might find in a hotel lobby or at a party. Yet I'm willing to bet that some people listening to me right now are shocked that I'm shocked. They had to voluntarily stop listening to music to make time to listen to me, or rather my guests, since they're actually the main attraction. Truth be told, there's a reason I don't listen to all that much music, and it has to do with my brain. If there's music going on, I listen to the music, and my brain stops working on anything else. Some part of my brain starts protesting. Hey, I'm trying to work here, or just think. What's all this music going on? I always thought it was similar to my friend Maggie. If she was cleaning, she turned on the vacuum cleaner. It took me a while to catch on to this. It seemed every time I called her on a Saturday morning, I would hear the vacuum. She finally told me that her brain kicked into cleaning gear when the vacuum cleaner was on. Energy wasting for sure, but boy, did Maggie have one clean house. Scientists at MIT have now determined that the brain gives special processing to music. In fact, it hijacks all manner of brain functions to process it. You see, I told you it was distracting me, right? Well, by computationally analyzing brain scans on music, the neuroscientists discovered that we have a music center in the brain, which also calls upon other brain functions. And it doesn't matter if it's hip-hop or rock, country or bebop. The same activation centers get activated. 
If it's anything like music, this part of the brain is activated. Just as there is a different part, which processes words and the human voice, and we're just figuring out all kinds of things. So I sit in my car and drive, listening to audiobooks, while the music part of my brain sits dormant, or if not dormant, just ready for any signs of music. It does explain how that signature NPR audio mix that switches from voices talking to music and back again puts our brains on alert. Indeed, it gives you a completely different experience. When the only music you hear are familiar intros or outros, short branding pieces meant to signal the starter end of a program or segment, no new synapses are firing here. The intent is to breed expectation, while the interspersed NPR audio takes you on a whole new journey every time. So listen to the music for me, if you will. My job uses words to bring visual pictures, insight, and comprehension into things we've not previously understood. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Stephen Johnson. He looks at the threads of technology over the millennia through fashion, music, and more, and how they relate to humans at play. Then on Tech Nation Health, our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, talks about the future of cancer, its prevention, detection, and emergent treatments. And Dr. Nicholas Sternholm, the president and CEO of Trillium Therapeutics, tells us about Trillium's approach to identify specific cancer cells so that the immune system can then remove them. Stephen Johnson's latest book is Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. I thought we would start with the punchline. You will find the future wherever people are having the most fun. One of the things that's so interesting about the history of play and the history of things that people do for fun um, is that it often ends up being, in a weird way, a way of predicting the future. The things that start as, as amusements, as kind of idle, trivial pursuits, end up kind of leaking into the straight world or end up kind of influencing big developments in science or politics or, or technology. So if you look around, you see people doing things that seem like they're just slacking off and, and goofing off. There's often the seed of big developments there. Well, let's bounce now. And we always say on Tech Nation, we have these Tech Nation facts of life in the tech age. Technology is the silent partner of history, yeah. which you could rename this book if you wanted yeah, to. Sure, you sure. could certainly do yeah, that. Yeah. And I look at this and it's like it, there's so many different ways to look at history. Mm. 
What I was saying doesn't take into account how important it is for people to be using the technology, dealing with it. You know, it's funny. When I when I sat down to start researching this book, I knew in a way that this is a kind of a sequel to how we got to now, the book and, and TV series that we did for PBS. And we hope to actually make it another season of the show based on this. And how we got to now was really a look at the history of innovation and technology and how these technologies had changed history in all these surprising ways. And that was a fun format because we, we had kind of six different topics, you know, six technologies, some of them really ancient technologies like transparent glass and, and you know, kind of electric light and things like that. And I could write 50 books. And there's so many different threads that you could write in that mode. But with Wonderland, I wanted to have a, a, a kind of unified theme to the six topics. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the history of things that people did for fun and the technologies they devised to amuse themselves and stuff like that, like games and optical illusions and so on. What I didn't, so I thought that would be interesting and just telling that kind of tech focused history is something I love to do. And there's, and, and there's a lot of great there's material evidence you there. do that. <laughs> yeah. But what I didn't realize until I started diving into it is that there was going to be not just a series of interesting stories about where these things came from, but a stronger argument about the importance of kind of playful um, endeavors and playful technology in driving human history. And that really by the end of the process, when I was done kind of writing it, certainly by the time uh, I was done writing and also early into the research process, I realized that you really – you. If you think about the prime movers of history that you were taught in high school or college, you know, the conventional ones, quest for power, nationalism, tribalism, religious conflicts, scientific advancement and so on, the pursuit of delight and amusement and play actually deserves to be in that pantheon. But we don't normally give it that much credit. So it became a much kind of stronger argument for, for thinking about history than I originally set out to to do. Well, there's there's a million things to say about it, you know, from looking at the economics of it to looking at the how everything moves together. Um, in my TED Talk, which I, I talked about what I called the innovation cascade, it doesn't matter whether it's totally new technology, it starts the cascade, mm. or a new use of an old technology, some human, you know, put yeah. it into their hands. Um, but the truth is, is that the, these cascades keep happening. It doesn't matter what the source is. It's not always just let's build some technology as we kind of think of today. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with, a, oh, look at that. Let's use it this way. Or I want to build this entertainment or this plaything. And then it ends up suddenly commerce says that would be really useful. Well, there's you know, there's this funny thread in uh... – in the music chapter, which is the last one that I wrote, actually, um, uh, about flutes and, and that, that goes really all the way from the Neanderthal Paleolithic times to the modern digital computer. But if, if you go back to, uh, you know, kind of 50,000 years ago in human history, there is extensive evidence that early humans – uh, some of the earliest technology they built were these little bone flutes where they carved little holes in, in hollow bones and uh, in some cases seemed to actually be creating instruments that would play recognizable musical intervals like fourths and fifths that a modern Western listener would recognize. Um, and I love just stopping for a second and saying, think about what life was like back then. That's 50,000 years ago. There's a whole universe of things left to invent, right? We've got, you know, proto spears and 
you know, f needles for for making garments and and you know a few other basic things. But you haven't invented the wheel. You haven't invented the alphabet. You haven't invented agriculture. All these different things. What do you choose to invent? A flute. Like there's no <laughs> yeah. there's no clear ooh, ooh, survival a mammoth, value. A woolly mammoth here going to kill us. Oh, but let's <laughs> but have a flute. Listen to listen to these beautiful sounds. <laughs> and and same thing with jewelry. Right. Some of the earliest you know, signs of kind of human. Artifice and craftsmanship are making jewelry, which has clearly no function, but somehow is just interesting to look at and delightful. It's a deep part of who we are. And what ends up happening is you you make the flute and you start tinkering with music and then you start making more elaborate musical instruments. And then, as I write about in the book, about a thousand years ago in, in Baghdad, these brilliant engineers from the height of the Islamic Renaissance build an automated flute player and they create, again, just for amusement, it's cool to have a robotic flute player play these songs. And behind the scenes, they design this rotating cylinder to control the notes that the, the automated flute player is going to play. And they design it so for the first time so that you can take this cylinder out and swap in a new one with different sets of notes, encoding the, the music you want to play. And that is the first truly programmable machine in history uh, and it sets up, you know, that's the point at which the distinction between hardware and software becomes kind of imaginable. Um, and it comes into the world through this kind of idle interest of, of amusing people with, with an automated music system. And it makes all our modern notions of we're the first this and we're the first this and we're so yeah. suspect. Yeah. Well, and also it's just if you think about the question of where did – computers come from and the way that we tend to answer that question, right? You, if you ask most people who have some sense of this, you know, where, where did the idea of computers come from? It's like, well, it came from, you know, mathematicians and it came from the military and they were code breakers and they were cracking Enigma and it was Turing. And, and, and look, all of that is true and it's an amazing history. But it also came from <laughs> toy makers and, 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 and music. Um, and, I mean, there's another thing that's, that's crazy about the history of music, which is that a technology that the computer age absolutely depends on, which is alphanumeric keyboards. I mean, we really would not, if people had not invented keyboards, originally typewriters and then computer keyboards, we wouldn't be able to do all the incredible programming that we do today. You couldn't do it with punch cards. You couldn't do it with voice, you know, until very recently. So keyboards are kind of the forgotten uh, technology. and what they represent are both technologies. And yeah. they're just like... Yeah, we just take them for granted because they're everywhere. But it actually turned out that a typewriter keyboard, an alphanumeric keyboard, was surprisingly hard to invent. Now, we had musical keyboards for about a 1,000 years, maybe even 2,000 years since the Romans had them. Um, and, of course, starting about 500 years ago, we had uh, clavichords and harpsichords and then the pianoforte and so on. And it wasn't until the late 1800s that people started to think, well, okay, we can use all 10 pads of our fingers to control a device that triggers musical notes. What if we actually used it to trigger letters instead of musical notes? And one of the things I find interesting about this is the typewriter is one of these technologies that seems like it arrived too late. Like we, <laughs> it was technically possible to invent a typewriter 200 years before, 300 years before. Gutenberg had shown that building automatic mechanical type technology was lucrative. Uh, so for some reason, it was very hard to think. But when when people finally started to build modern typewriters, um, it came directly from music. The first typewriter was called the writing harpsichord. And so again, you have 
both the kind of idea of programmability and the automated flute player and the idea of a keyboard both came from music. And so when we talk about where computers came from, we have to include that more creative side, that musical side. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Stephen Johnson. You know him from his many books, including his first, Interface Culture, through the ghost map and everything bad is good for you. And yes, you've read his articles and commentaries on any number of publications, from the New York Times to Wired. And you may have seen the PBS and BBC series, How We Got to Now. He's here today with Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Let's just roll back here. You mentioned Baghdad, and of course we know it in the, sort of the modern geopolitical mm. unfortunate sense. We know it semi-historically. But who knew it was a planned community? All yeah. planned communities are technology, by the way. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was in, in kind of circa 800 uh, AD. It was arguably the most advanced city in the world. Um, it had uh, beautiful kind of gaslit street lamps and uh, – advanced uh, kind of water delivery systems and, and things like that. So it was, it was Concentric a very, it was very, circles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, had a, it, had a, it, uh, it had a apparently kind of magical design to it. And it housed um, this extraordinary institution that, that I begin Wonderland with, which was uh, this place that has this great name, the House of Wisdom. And the House of Wisdom was kind of a think tank and a translation bureau, but also kind of a maker lab in our in our modern language. It was filled with these engineers. And they did a lot of things, including this automated flute uh, contraption, but they also published a bunch of books with diagrams and schematics of the engineering work that they were doing. And the books, too, had a great, great names like um, The Book of Ingenious Devices. What I find so beautiful about these books, and they're actually lovely, we reproduce them uh, in, in Wonderland, uh, full color, uh, reproductions, um, that you see this extraordinary engineering work that's called all these hydraulic systems that were way ahead of their time and clocks that were way more advanced than any clock that the West would see for, for 500 years. But everything in the book is a toy. They're just little kind of mini robots well, not played. Not everything, but almost right. e- but almost many, everything. Many, I many, mean, they're just over, all... Over 50%. Yeah. Well over yeah. 50%. Yeah. And... They're they're just little objects of amusement and and wonder, and yet they contain these revolutionary engineering ideas that would then go on to be used in much more kind of mainstream uh, settings. And that's kind of the emblem for the book, that inside these toys are often really big ideas, and they come into the world in the form of toys, but then once you release them, they end up changing things. You want to know a secret about engineers? Yes. We'll sit there, we wrist line something, we're working and working and working, oh, we need a little break. So we play with something, or we're working on building something else as if building is work. We don't think it is. We mm. think it's air. We're mm. building a toy, a game, or whatever. It was the same people. Yeah. <laughs> we do it all the time. Yeah. It's happening as we speak. And it's not surprising when you think of it that way. You know, I just went through thinking about games, and there's a chapter on games that maybe we'll get to, but um, I just went through this wonderful experience with my son, my youngest son, who was at the time nine. This was last summer. And we kind of had this summer project of designing our own board game. And it was so, it was such a great process. And it's very. It's a great educational experience. It's a great parent-child bonding experience because you have this great parity uh, between you. You know, you're you're kind of coming at it as equals because a nine-year-old knows about as much about board games as you do on some level as a grown-up, and 
the process of sitting there and trying to dream up what the game should be, what the theme of the game should be, what should be the kind of random generator, do you have dice or cards or whatever, whether rules, what's the design of the board, you know, what are the, and you're, part of it you're doing, it's, it's an example of kind of emergent thinking, to mention another book of mine, um, where you're, you're thinking about if you put all these rules together and you have two players playing, out of all these interacting parts, this is, this is what the game will be like once you start playing, you're imagining this kind of system, and then you finally sit down to, to play the game for the first time, and it's terrible. <laughs> it's incredibly boring. <laughs> One person wins after three rolls of the dice, whatever it is. There's something you haven't anticipated, and then you go back and you modify. You think, how do I make this more interesting? Yeah. And you tweak it and you iterate. And it's a little mini version of the scientific method, right? You're building a hypothesis about how the system is going to work, and then you test the hypothesis, and then you modify the hypothesis. And my son and I, we just had so much fun. We weren't we were doing a very high-level form of thinking, particularly for a nine-year-old, but it didn't look like thinking. It didn't feel like thinking. It felt like playing. Um, Good and... news is he's found to be an engineer. Like, <laughs> right, right. He's got a job. Yeah. Well, well, every parent wants to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's a really – I mean, I I think uh, the parents out there, I recommend, uh, recommend doing that. There's so much to take away from your book. For instance, and we'll just stick with the Baghdad thing here and, and the and the book of wisdom. Actually, it's not the book of wisdom. It's the... It's the house of wisdom house and of the, wisdom. the book of ingenious devices. That's right. So, we'll call yeah. it the Baghdad book. When, yeah. when the Mongols came in, this after a thousand years, they roll in and they throw all the books in the Tigris. Yeah. They tried to destroy all this. There, I mean, the, that Islamic kind of culture, this many other books that spent much more time and, and, and thought talking about the importance of this period, but um, I'm not really an expert in it, but that that period was crucial because it, you know, it coincides with the European Dark Ages, and so there is this period where all these older ideas that had come out of kind of Greco-Roman science were translated and, and kept alive in these in places like the House of Wisdom, and then all these new ideas like um, algorithms, for instance, come out of that same period. So another side of computing that was was crucial, um, and then you have all these engineering breakthroughs. So you both have the kind of saving of older wisdom and the advancement of a lot of this mathematical science and engineering science that happens. And then fortunately, by the time they trash Baghdad, the West is kind of coming back online again, and <laughs> they're able to start you know, moving the ball forward a little bit in terms of progress. But, you know, I put Baghdad right at the beginning of Wonderland because one of the other things, and again, this was something I, I didn't realize going into it. It really came out of the research is when you look at the history of play and when you look at things like the history of fashion or games, uh, it's a very global project. It's a very multicultural project and, and history. And it, it makes sense in a, in a way, looking back on it now, it makes sense to me because when you're when you're seeking out delightful new experiences or new flavors or, or new textures or fabrics, one way to seek them is to go to other parts of the world where people have kind of independently come up with new fabrics or colors or musical the instruments. The desire for the internet has always been there. The implementation <laughs> has always been there. They just didn't have the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, but there was, were people sometimes... You we're know, a human going, collective. We want to have those other experiences and... and 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 they often come into our daily life in the form of, oh, that's a beautiful kind of cloth or that's an interesting new taste. I mean, one of the things I love, there's a the, um, it's a chapter about the history of the spice trade, right? So, so spice is another example of something that's – it doesn't have any nutritional value. It's just an interesting flavor that makes your food more interesting but isn't actually something you biologically need. And 
one of the things we we know that until um, the late 1700s, every single clove consumed anywhere on the planet grew in one of five tiny islands uh, east of Indonesia, the famous Spice Islands of of lore. Uh, There was no way to to get cloves. Cloves did not travel. There was no way to grow them other than these five islands until just 250 years ago. And yet uh, archaeologists found preserved cloves uh, in a uh, archaeological dig in, in kind of ancient Babylon and dated them back to something like 2000 BC. So by definition, those cloves had had to travel from you know, the, uh, the, the Indonesian archipelago a, all the way a. to the Middle East at a point in time where no one living in ancient Babylon had any idea of the existence of Indonesia and no human being had ever traveled as far as those clothes had, just a relay Wait a kind of Marco Polo, you mean he wasn't the first guy that, <laughs> I don't know. People were, people were, some, <laughs> and, and all in the name of a flavor, right? That, yes. that, that we would, that, and really we have a global economy Initially, because of the spice trade, and we came went invented all these elaborate systems and economic systems and navigational systems to travel the world in pursuit of just interesting taste. Uh, Taste this, you know. I mean, it's an extraordinary part of our history. Let's just stay on fashion for a while. Uh, The whole concept of Tyrian purple, where it started. And what it what it actually drove, uh, in 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 fact. Yeah, there was a there was a sea snail, the murex snail, that grew uh, lived in the kind of shallow shores of the uh, Mediterranean, and at some point, a couple of thousand years ago, people figured out that if you used seemingly a, an immense amount of these snails, but you could create this incredibly vibrant purple dye, purple being a color that's pretty rare in in nature, and uh, it became very quickly a status symbol. Um, people entranced by this color. Again, this is in the category of things. The color bestowed no actual advantage on you. There was not, It did not protect you from diseases or keep you warm in the winter or feed your children. It just was interesting to look at. And for some reason, that became a sign of, uh, of status. And the Murex snail then became very sought after. And basically, they depleted the entire supply. When they started mass producing it, yeah, as they we humans producing, tend to yeah, do. Right. And, and <laughs> you know, for years, uh, for centuries, the, the phrase um, born, of the, born to the purple means to be wealthy or to be an aristocrat. Um, and so basically, they ran through the supply of Murex snails in the Mediterranean. And it was the pursuit of these snails that led for the first time uh, uh, navigators out onto the o- out through the Straits of Gibraltar, out into the open, open ocean of the Atlantic um, in pursuit of these these snails. And think about what a momentous moment that is in human history. They're the first time Mediterranean cultures are leaving and going out to sea. And the what's Phoenicians. Driving them, right? And what's That's driving them uh, is the pursuit of a color, just, just a color. <laughs> and yet... As the mass production, you know, depleted these snails and all of that, somehow we lost the manufacturing process. Yeah. From- People have tried to uh, recreate the kind of the formula for making this this Tyrian purple. If we ever – if we do make a, a season of how we got to now, 
uh, based on this book. We, we've talked about actually trying to do, reconstruct this die, actually do, do it, a scene where I, I try to do the die myself. Look at this. Some amazing natural disaster happens. You know, that vault in Atlanta where Coca-Cola keeps right. the secret recipe that it's never revealed. Somehow, every Coca-Cola plant implodes. hundred years from now, they decide to rewrite the Stephen Johnson book, How We Got to Now. People are trying to recreate Coca-Cola, but we all got to taste it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm speaking with Stephen Johnson. His book is Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, the future of cancer, prevention, detection, and emergent treatments, and the efforts of Trillium Therapeutics identifying cancer cells to enable the immune system to remove them. Stay with us. Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Stephen Johnson, the author of Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. One thing that's so impressive in this book are all of the illustrations, some of them new, some of them old, some yeah. of them photos, some all kinds of these that had to be expensive. I, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I uh, on this one, I did all the um, photo research myself. Uh, which was fun. This and how we got to now, we, we we did. My publisher Riverhead did a beautiful job of just making the book itself as a beautiful object, and, and the paper stock and the colors. Which uh, one of the reasons why it makes a wonderful gift. Uh, but I did all the photo research this time around because it was just too fun to give to somebody else. And and yeah, it did. It was expensive to make and to to get some of the rights for that. But I think it's it's worth it. It's such a visual. Um, project and I'm actually not a terrifically visual person. I'm more of a word person, but um, I'm really glad uh, it, In adds, fact, it adds I, a lot to it. I meant to ask you about this last time. I don't know how I knew this, and I didn't. And if you don't mind talking about it, um, apparently you have some challenges on on what you call visual encoding. Yeah, well, not the not guy who gives us all these great visuals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
I've just for for Mind Wide Open, which I think we talked about a book I wrote a million years ago about brain science, and that in that book I did a lot of tests on my own brain, and uh, yeah, there are a couple there. I mean, there's kind of the the classic like refrigerator blindness of like I'm looking in the refrigerator but I can't see this object and my wife will be like it's just it's literally right in front of you like I just <laughs> can't do that and I, since I was a You're kid I was I was always yeah. bad with spatial geometry and things like that um, so they they aren't like debilitating problems but it's definitely I've learned uh, to kind of compensate for my inability to kind of see things uh, that are sitting right in front of me. Um, and it's I'm, I'm surviving. <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting. You, many people could have gone their whole lives and never found that out about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And none of our abilities are even. All right. of our abilities are uneven. It actually speaks sort of to our individual gifts and understanding what we're able to do. You know, I had an interesting exercise. It wasn't doing a test, but it was just switching media. We did we did a podcast for uh, for Wonderland, which was a lot of fun. It's the first time I'd done a kind of an extended audio format. And uh and I have a lot. I'm an amateur musician, so I have a lot of musical gear in my home. And so it was, I was like, "Oh, I can finally use this for a purpose," you know, recording everything. But what I found was in editing the podcast, and this is you know kind of old news to someone who spent so much time in radio. Um, I would sit there, you know, we'd have a thirty minute podcast, and I would think, "Oh my gosh, just my brain cannot imagine and keep in its head a sense of what." is in the episode what's working, what the changes need to be. Whereas if I had a script right in front of me, if I had text in front of me, I can clean up, you know, five pages of text in my sleep at this point. I'm so good at it. I can do it incredibly quickly. I can immediately see where everything goes, whatever. And every time I would switch over to this auditory mode, I was like, this is so hard. (laughs) My brain is just not optimized for this way of of processing information. I'm just much better when it's words that I can see. It's so interesting you say that because whenever I'm interviewing people, I'm seeing this visual – you know, graphic thing of it's unfolding. Okay, did we get that? Can we bring this right. in here? Did we do? Yeah. And I see it very graphically, and it's, it's sitting between you and me. If it was a hologram, right? right. <laughs> you could That's see great. it. And we're all so much different that we're and we're we're learning about that now from a from a neuroscience yeah. perspective, and a, a sort of a multimedia perspective that never we were never exposed to before. We couldn't have an experience of. Yeah, it's really true. So people are asking you, okay, well, what's going to happen? What we're playing today, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, the, the in terms of play, you know, predicting the future, the, the obvious example recently, I think, was Pokemon Go, right? That you had this, this, you know, if we believe that augmented reality of some form is coming to us um, and that we're in the future going to walk around real world spaces with some kind of layer of digital information kind of overlaid on that on that real world space the first time we did this uh, you know as a global community uh, en masse was playing a game (laughs) you know running around (laughs) chasing capturing imaginary japanese monsters you know that's the way it started and then uh and you know five years from now we'll probably look back and say now uh, then and then it migrated into the real world um and i i think there's a you know there's a lot of i've been thinking about my my one of my other son's has been trading a little bit um, uh, fictitious objects in video game worlds where he'll buy this weapon that is being sold for real U.S. dollars or Bitcoin, actually, you know, for $100, $150, something like that. And then 
he basically thinks it's going up in price. And in fact, it tripled in two months. And he's now sold it for $450. So he's- It's, it's hard to ball him out for that. Right, no. right. Yeah. You know, actually, I ended up I ended up inve- co-investing with him. I was like, I get half the profits, uh, but you take all the loss. And, uh, and so we've made some money and we talk about it every day. We're like, how's it? It's going up. It's going down a little bit, you know, whatever, um, which is an interesting exercise anyway. But- the the whole idea that you would have these virtual worlds where v- virtual objects and where people are making a kind of living constructing imaginary things that they sell for real money, um, I, I think it's entirely likely that, that that in a sense, if you look at it in terms of the economic trends long term, that you have kind of industrial economies and then consumer economies and then service economies, it may well be that this we are headed towards virtual economies where people are paid – to create imaginary spaces or imaginary goods in imaginary worlds, and that's a big part of the economy. There's so many things where I, I found, um, and this is this is our great opportunity at this point, where um, just think of all the implausible things that have successfully taken over, like Wikipedia. I mean, I was a huge believer in decentralized systems and bottom-up software and all these things that I'd written about and experimented with in the, in the 90s, but even I would have said... An entirely user-authored encyclopedia, that'll never work. You know, like it, it turns out it does, right? So there, there is this amazing kind of moment where you can have um, kind of slightly crazy ideas and people will try them and experiment with them. Given your experience, you probably think I spend every interview talking about tech nation facts of life of the high tech. <laughs> I, I never do. I might pop off one every so often. <laughs> so don't think this is the she has this whole show. All she ever does is quote herself. <laughs> it's incredible. Not true. Stephen, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. You come back. See us anytime. Thank you. It's great to be back. My guest today is Stephen Johnson. The book is Wonderland How Play Made the Modern World. It's published by Riverhead Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies. On today's Tech Nation Health, we hear from our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, about the future of cancer, prevention, detection, and emergent treatments. Then we'll speak with Dr. Nicholas Sternholm, the president and CEO of Trillium Therapeutics. Trillium is working on a cancer drug to identify cancer cells and then enable the immune system to remove them. He'll tell us about Trillium's approach. Dr. Daniel Kraft is the chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health and founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. I thought a, a timely issue would be to discuss a bit of the cutting edge and future of cancer, from prevention to early detection uh, to therapy, and even how we're starting to crowdsource uh, the future of cancer prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. Well, certainly cancer is, we have a whole different reaction to it now when we hear someone has cancer. I mean, folks used to not even be told they had the diagnosis. It was uh, in some societies, in some Asian societies, families still don't tell their, their loved ones. Now it's a little bit more out on the table. Just like today, still mental health issues are kind of under the under the covers. Uh, we need to elucidate those. So once you can identify something and bring it forward, it helps uh, uh, 
helps I think the patient and move it uh, helps to, to everybody. Care. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's that society. Well, where do you want to start with that? Well, I think one of the interesting areas now is we all want to. Uh, I always talk about being proactive with healthcare instead of waiting and being reactive for disease to strike. And we're in an era now with molecular genomics and sequencing and new sensors and diagnostics, hopefully to pick up cancer before it occurs or prevent it before it occurs. And we're now in the genomic era. You know, we're in the era today where we're at about a $1,000 genome. It will soon be a $100 genome within a couple of years. And one element of understanding your risk for disease is your genomics. There are well-known genes associated with risk for breast cancer an ovarian, the BRCA1 and 2 genes, and famously Angelina Jolie discovered she had those and took proactive measures, um, all the way to a whole set of combinations of genes and other factors. So part of, I hope, the future of medicine is we know our genetic risks, and that might mean we might tune our diagnostics. Not every woman needs a mammography at age 40 or a colonoscopy at age 50. It might be earlier or later or not at all or different screening approaches. So I think we'll start to stratify risk and, um, and learn if we have a risk to modify our diet, our exercise, many of the most simple preventions, 30 minutes of exercise and a better leafy green diet are the most preventative elements for, for cancer in the first place. Well, let's go walk over and have a salad. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> That's your, your, your cancer prevention 101. That's right. But, but the biggest thing is early detection. And it's a conundrum, right? Um, many folks uh, develop colon cancer. There's news out today here in, in February of 2017 that, that colon cancer rates are rising, particularly in younger sets. And many folks at age 50, when you standardly get your colonoscopy, don't do it for obvious reasons. They don't like the, the pain, discomfort, or, or what have you. So um, we need to get better, easier, uh, accessible cancer screening. Um, that's with more specificity and more sensitivity. Mammograms aren't that comfortable, as, as you know, and still have lots of false positives. So um, cancer detection, I think, has, is ripe for reinvention. We haven't had any new screens out for, for some time. Um, there are a lot of molecular tests that are coming. So just to run through a couple interesting areas, um, breath turns out to be full of information. Uh, the idea of a, of a breath biopsy. I just talked to a, a UK-based company today that's developing sort of a, a nano-nose that can look at the molecules in your breath and potentially pick up lung cancer uh, or evidence of breast or ovarian. So that sounds like a more uh, interesting approach. Uh, we're seeing ways now to test your stool, not just for blood, which is a standard Pretty screen, standard, yeah. Um, but to look uh, for the molecular translocations in some forms of early polyps or colon cancer. Um, and then there's several companies here in the Bay Area, some of which are quite well known now, one called Grail. It's, um, I think they're raising about a billion dollars of funding to look at circulating DNA. So it turns out... Um, a big change in how we do prenatal diagnosis in women now who are pregnant, instead of doing amniocentesis, we're now sampling some blood and we can find small amounts of circulating fetal DNA and now analyze for signs of like trisomy 21 uh, or other genetic diseases. That same approach, being able to do deep sequencing of small amounts of uh, fragments of DNA in the blood is being applied to screening or, or today for managing cancers. But the future of cancer screening, maybe you just get a simple blood test and we screen for the genetic markers of those cells that are, that are uh, maybe leaking their DNA when they die. So exciting potentials there. And, and companies like Grail, Gardent, which are both local companies, are moving in that direction. Also changing is how we treat cancer once we detect it. Things have changed dramatically. Well, once you detect it, yeah, you want to be able to do something about it. There's still a lot of debate um, in, in, man, in men's cancer, in prostate cancer, what do you do with a PSA number? How often do you get tested? Uh, there's lots of, uh, in some settings, better to do nothing. And many folks should not get screened at all after a certain age because uh, you're more likely to die of something else. 
Um, but a big challenge in terms of screening, whether it's for prostate, uh, ovarian, colon, uh, or beyond, is, is it's still quite expensive. And in many cases, folks like to skip it. Um, so we need to, I think, leverage technologies to reimagine diagnostics and screening. And I was just involved this last fall in a new XPRIZE initiative. Uh, we were one of nine new uh, teams to propose a new XPRIZE. I was involved in the Tricorder XPRIZE a few years ago. And my team proposed a new cancer XPRIZE. And instead of focusing on therapy and curing cancer, of which there are, again, thousands of subtypes, we proposed a new prize to incentivize new teams and companies to come together to solve early diagnosis and screening. So imagine getting screened for uh, for cancer as easy as a urine dipstick, something you could do in under 24 hours and un- for under $24 from Tennessee to Tanzania. We ended up being the top-ranked team at the XPRIZE Visioneering, and we're hoping to launch this as a formal XPRIZE in early 2018 and, and catalyze folks from around the world, whether you're a big data scientist, a medical device person, a physician, a patient, to, to help collaborate to bring new solutions, whether it's measuring your breath or magic screening devices, things that haven't been invented yet. We think we can hopefully catalyze that, not just for the the, the Western world, but to be able to take that in many parts of the world where no one's getting an X-ray or colonoscopy or mammogram. Actually, when you think about a a colonoscopy or a mammogram, we're talking about, boy, what what big productions, what big drama. You know, the idea that we can bring it back to something simple, you know, that's a... That's, that is the holy grail. <laughs> right, and at a price point that can be done around the world, and that when you have that information, you can do something about it. So um, that's, one, that's one area we hope to catalyze to this new Cancer X Prize. We'll have a lot of information at cancerxprize.com. Something that has totally moved, of course, over, over the years has been the appreciation for what cancer is. For years, people thought it was all kinds of things. You did something bad, who knew what it was, and now we know it's genetic mutations. Well, genetic mutations often that come over time or some that you might have a propensity for from birth, but most cancers we don't think uh, are from just genetics or from any one behavior exposure. It's often very multifactorial. It's not your fault if someone develops it. Um, And we're also learning that we're redefining cancer at the molecular level. In the past, you know, I'm trained as a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, you know, you have lung cancer or lymphoma or uh, kidney cancer. And we, for example, just lung cancer alone, there's probably thousands or tens of thousands of subtypes at the molecular level that have some similarities under the microscope, but genetically are quite different. So we're entering an era now where every tumor will be sequenced. There are already companies from Foundation Medicine and others that are starting to take tumors and newly diagnosed patients or after they relapse, look at their sequencing, try to identify pathways that are going to be targeted by existing drugs or potentially new ones or combinations and cocktails. So you can help guide the oncologist to pick a more uh, uh, personalized, precise approach. Um, We've been seeing artificial intelligence play a role in making sense of all this immense data. And that's going to go beyond the genome, but the the proteome, the expression profile of those cells. So hopefully the future of cancer therapy is going to be much more precise. You'll be having, you know, lung cancer type 2003.5 rather than the same treatment we give to almost all patients with lung cancer today, which is essentially carpet bombing chemotherapy. And this changes prognosis too? Well, that's the hope. We don't want to be torturing patients with uh, chemotherapy and radiation. We want to make it more precise, hopefully less toxic. When you have uh, therapeutics that target a molecular pathway, in some cases, like in the disease uh, uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML, a single uh, new drug, relatively new drug, uh, attacks that lock and key mechanism and can cure that disease with an oral pill, which used to be almost a fatal disease. That sort of model um, going forward, we hope, can be applied to many cancers. Um, and then fo- following the realm of targeted drugs, we're learning to rev up the immune system. You know, we're often 
most of us might be, quote unquote, cancering all the time, but our immune systems are strong enough to detect that few cells that are aberrant and knock them out. What often happens when folks are stressed or have a weak immune system, they develop more cancers. Uh, HIV patients, AIDS patients classically develop carposis sarcomas and others. So we're now learning how to tune the body's own immune system or to take out, for example, T cells, reprogram them to attack the cancer cell itself. So one of the big exciting areas today is uh, T cell therapies where we can take cells from the patient, expand them outside the body and infuse them back after they've been further stimulated to attack the patient's cancer, uh, including vaccines. Uh, there are the don't eat me signals, so uh, ways that cancer cells sort of mask themselves from the immune system. And at Stanford, where I, where I trained and I was in faculty, my mentor there, Irv Weissman, and his lab group has done a lot of work looking at the CD47 pathway. And this anti-CD47 antibody blocks that don't eat me signal. They've now spun out a company and trials are underway that look quite promising. So some things that might affect many cancers by, again, uh, enabling the immune system to, its, to do its job. That cancer is pretty tricky. It's super tricky. And the industry is is rife with challenges. Um, I was fortunate last summer to be at uh, in D.C. with Vice President Biden at the Cancer Moonshot uh, Summit. And a lot of what they talked about was doing it five years, what used to take 10 uh, in terms of new approaches to cancer. And that's not just new drugs and devices and screening modalities. It's bringing collaboration together, different pharma companies, academia, intellectual property, the FDA. There's lots of roadblocks to research. And many times uh, a trial might be done at UCSF or Stanford. The, the folks aren't talking to each other. If the, the results aren't positive, it may never get published. A lot of information locked into our electronic medical records. So a lot of the work of the Cancer Moonshot Initiative, which is now being spun out by uh, Vice President Biden and a nonprofit, is to help folks collaborate and connect dots and speed up uh, the process and align the incentives. Let us all work together. That's the future because there's no, in terms of a cancer moonshot, there is no one cancer. You don't get to the moon and plant a flag and you've cured cancer. There's a whole constellation and planets of different forms of cancer. So we need to go well past the moon to the entire galaxy and um, use new methods in crowdsourcing to share data, to apply machine learning and AI, to, to look at the sequences of thousands or maybe millions of cancer patients, and, and to enable folks to enter clinical trials in new ways. Another piece of the equation is most adults who have cancer, they're not in academic centers. They're never entered into a clinical trial. They get the standard treatment. In my world of pediatric oncology, almost every kid is on a clinical trial. In fact, the first cures for like leukemia came out of the Dana-Farber in the 1960s where kids started getting um, uh, folate age, anti-folate agents. And we learned to put every kid on a regimen. And soon we've moved from almost 100% fatal common leukemias in kids to 90 plus percent long-term survival. And that sort of model from pediatrics can be applied to adults. And we can enable almost any cancer patient, hopefully in most parts of the world, to enter some trial in some form. So we're always learning. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Look forward to next time. Thanks. Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine and chair for medicine at Singularity University. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. Normal human cells have a number of proteins on their surface, but should they become cancer cells, the profiles of these surface proteins change. One such protein is CD47. Dr. Nicholas Sternholm is the president and CEO of Trillium Therapeutics. So CD47 is expressed at, at low levels on most normal cells, and it has a number of functions, and, and we really don't understand a lot of it. But 
particularly, for example, on red blood cells, it's expressed at higher levels and it is involved in maintaining the regulations of, of red blood cells, uh, the lifespan. Lifespan of a red blood cell is about 100 days and then starts to lose its CD47 and the body clears it out. So it so has a protective It's medicine. a survival mechanism, yes, survival protein. So um, unfortunately, as is often the case, uh, cancer cells have figured out a way of co-opting this and they use it to kind of cloak themselves from the immune system. So they have all kinds of CD47 proteins. Uh, lots of CD47 and that kind of shuts down the immune system. Normally, the immune system would get rid of these cancer cells, but they find a way of hiding themselves from the immune system. We, you we said, can, ah, we got to do something here. You got to do something here, and we got we to gotta try to uncloak them. We got to make it visible to the immune system. And by blocking CD47, but an, an agent that binds to CD47, uh, the, the tumor cell is no longer able to hide from the immune system. And the immune system will then carry the cancer cell out. The immune system will attack and eat the cancer cell. That's why it's... It deserves it. It deserves (laughs) it. Totally deserves it. Uh, Now, the problem is, is that there's CD47 and a whole lot of cells in your body. How do you get this, turn the CD47 off on the cancer cells and not in the rest of them. Exactly. So that that's the first question we asked ourselves when we started this program five years ago. How do we not induce a self-digestive syndrome here? We eat every cell in the body. It turns out that the immune system is quite sophisticated. It doesn't only need to block the do not eat signal. It also needs an eat signal. And we know that cancer cells are dividing very rapidly. And if when the cell divides rapidly, it generates a lot of waste material. You can think about it as, as garbage. And it has nowhere to put it. So it puts it on its surface or it secretes it. And that's how the immune system recognizes that this this is a cancer cell. This cell divides. It's just too dividing quickly. dividing way too fast. Yeah. Dividing too fast and too much garbage proteins that have generated, met- metabolic proteins. In order to survive, it has to get rid of its byproducts, and that's what we know as an ETH signal. We don't know really what these exact signals are, but we do understand that there's something on the tumor cell that is not normal, and that is recognized by, by the immune system. It's not present on normal cells. The, the tumor cell is just dividing too rapidly and growing too fast, and it generates too many waste products that is recognized by the immune system. So where are you in the arc of going from science to registered product? Oh, <laughs> uh, we are early. We're in clinical trials. We are... You're in humans. Yep. We are dosing patients um, here in California, City of Hope, actually. Uh, we are in five sites across the United States. Uh, we're treating lymphoma patients. Those are our first patients, but we are planning to expand into other um, blood cancers like leukemias, uh, myeloma, uh, and that will hopefully happen later in the year or in the new year. Um, so, yeah, we are, um, we are treating humans. These are people with cancer, and there are other cancer drugs on the market, therapeutics on the market. At what point can you come in and try your therapy? Unfortunately, that's how clinical trials are done in the early days when you're 
first in human trial, it's not ethical to treat patients that are newly diagnosed and haven't tried the, the, the approved product. So yes, we, these are very sick patients. We, um, we got involved in this. We already saw a, a, a lab here at Stanford, Irv Wiseman's lab, who is working on, on, on this target, and they had developed a, a certain approach. And we decided, okay, we got to take a different approach because they have patent filings. And rather than getting involved in, in back and forth, why don't we take a different approach? So we took a different approach. And that was purely for patent reasons. That's unfortunately what we have to do sometimes. And then down the road, a couple of years later, we realized that our approach might actually have an added benefit uh, and, and from a safety point of view. And, and it turns out, and, and I think I, uh, I told you earlier, red blood cells, which you have many, many trillions of in your body, they express CD47. And that's always been a concern that aren't we going to eliminate all the red blood cells, cause massive levels of anemia? Um, and that's a valid point. We don't bind red blood cells by just by pure luck. Our approach doesn't bind red blood cells. And we didn't believe. So even it. though there's CD47 there, yeah. you can't bind to it. So no, you can't remove it. That's the only cell in the human body that we can't bind to, <laughs> and <laughs> we were just lucky. And but we didn't believe it at first. We did it over and over again. And and uh, this is a story that's developed over the last couple of years. And we now have other groups saying that no, the approach that Trillium is using isn't binding. So you cells. know it's true. So we know it's yeah, a little bit of luck. A little bit, a lot of luck. A lot of luck. A lot of luck. But we'll take so, it. Now, what kinds of cancers are you looking at? We are initially looking at um, hematological blood cancers such as leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma. That's really where the laboratory science took us. There's no reason to believe that we can't treat solid tumors like breast lung cancer, prostate, bladder. Um, there's evidence in the literature, not from us, but from others, that CD47 plays a role there. So we will go down that path, um, down the road. Uh, we're thinking about it. We're planning. But right now we are in, in blood cancers. And so you're in blood cancers, but you have the great good fortune not to bind to red blood cells. Right. Absolutely. I hope you have more luck like this. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. No, it was lucky. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much. Please come back. See us again. Thanks for having me. Dr. Nicholas Sternholm is the president and CEO of Trillium Therapeutics. More information is available at trilliumtherapeutics.com. That's Trillium, T-R-I-L-L-I-U-M, trilliumtherapeutics.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.